come to any politician, they pay attention to it, and they will take action. But voices count. If there's one lesson you can learn from this podcast, it's that. Voices count and they work. That was Bill Casey, our former MP and our guest on episode 17. Stay informed, get involved. Welcome to the Great Ambers Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Cameron. Welcome back, everyone. Today's guest on the podcast is our former member of parliament, Bill Casey. I'm so excited Bill is here. Um, Bill was first elected as our MP in 1988 and was re-elected as a member of three different political parties until he officially retired in 2019. So this is the first episode in my series talking to politicians about how local people and individual people can work towards and work together to advocating for any change that they want to see or they don't want to see in our political system or within our communities. Um, I wanted to do this because I know coming out of the coronavirus situation, we have the opportunity as a community to talk about what we want to see different and to take action to make these changes happen or act to keep things the way they were before. But we need to do this ourselves to make this happen. And I think over the last 25 or 30 years, the skills, the confidence, and the ability in an individual person taking action and making something happen has been lost. And I wanted to start this conversation again in context of really the municipal election happening in October. Um, And I think leading up to that, it's important for us to think about how we can get involved. Perhaps some people as a candidate, perhaps as supporting a a candidate you like or you see, or perhaps it's just knowing and understanding and making an informed and wise decision and voting. Whatever role it is, I want to start talking about this now. So I really appreciate Bill coming on. Uh, It was a fantastic conversation. Bill shared a number of different stories about about projects and about accomplishments he was able to achieve because of an individual person or a number of people in our riding got together and made their voices heard. Bill talks a lot about these different people and tells a lot of these different stories. He shares his three rules of how to deal with, interact with the government. He also tells us how former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien saved the Beaubassin historical site and how his collection of buoys started. Bill is also planning to start a blog shortly to encourage people to get involved and stay involved in politics. So when that goes live, I will definitely share uh, the link to that and share updates on that. And before we get to the interview with Bill, I want to take a minute and in the spirit of the Gratitude Project, one of the things that can really help us here on the podcast are ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. So thank you to anybody and everybody who has submitted a rating or a review so far. I just wanted to take a quick second and just share uh, one of the one of the reviews somebody submitted. Uh, it was titled "Uplifting Local Content." The Great Amherst Podcast is an uplifting show that takes the global pandemic and looks at what local people are doing to sustain themselves and support others. I love listening to this. Thank you very much for the review. Uh, I am really appreciative of that. Uh, if anybody out there can take is enjoying the show and can take a minute to log in and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, that would mean a lot to me. So thank you in advance. And today's episode is brought to you by Tony Mitchell with Royal LePage Cumberland Realty. For anyone looking to buy or sell their house, contact Tony at 664-1372 or on Facebook to discuss all your options right now. And now here's our interview with Bill Casey. 
Welcome back to the Great Amherst podcast. Uh, I'm so pleased and excited to welcome our guest today. Uh, our guest today is our former member of parliament, uh, Bill Casey. Bill Bill is our member of parliament, um, first elected in 1988 to the as a progressive conservative member and was our member of parliament many times over the 30 years until he officially retired in 2019. So welcome, Bill. Thank you for coming on. A pleasure. Thank you for doing this. Yeah. So I asked Bill to come on because one of the things I've been thinking about is as uh, we're coming out of the coronavirus shutdown and self-isolation, I think we have an opportunity and a time to think about what is important and what do we want in our communities? Do we want to carry on what we were doing before? Do we want to do something different? Are there changes that we want to see happen? And if we want those changes to happen, I think we need to work together as a community, as community members and with our government, uh, both or municipally, federally, provincially. And I want Bill to come on and just sort of talk uh, with him about how we can actually do that. Uh, because I'm afraid over the last 20, 25, 30 years, either our confidence in being able to do it or the skills in being able to do that have have disappeared. And I think they're it's a skill set we need to reach back and try to find and redevelop. So that's why I wanted Bill, Bill to come on today. So I, I wanted to start with, I think there's a lot of people that are uh, disillusioned with politics or are afraid to get involved or don't know how to get involved or just don't want to vote. So I guess I'm wondering, what, what do you say to people who may make a comment like that to you? I, first of all, <clears throat> I think it's wrong. I think that uh, politics is important. Uh, for me, it's been, it changed my life when I went into politics. I, I was always in the car business or in the house business or something. And I thought I knew my community, but I really didn't. Okay. Uh, when I, when I just at, right away after I was elected, I started to meet people that needed help that I never knew were there. People that had physical disabilities or, or emotional issues or financial or marital or whatever. But a lot of people needed help. And I never knew it. I never saw those people. The people that, the people that need the most help you don't see. I thought I knew my community, but I didn't. And that changed me dramatically. But uh, I think I don't think people should be cynical about politics. I guess they probably have lots of reason to, but I'm not cynical about it at all. I've seen people make change. I've seen individuals drive issues that made change. I've seen, as far as, like, my, my experience is in the mem- as a member of parliament in Ottawa, I've seen individual members make huge change. And uh, it's because of... Uh, influence from the writing. I, a, a good example that comes to mind sure. is, oh, 20 years ago, no, I forget the year, but anyway, some time ago, there were two young boys in my writing that were diagnosed with brain tumors, two. Okay. And one passed away right away and one survived, but had dozens of operations. And they asked me if there's anything I could do as a member of parliament. Now, those two people initiated this. I drafted a private member's bill uh, asking the government to establish a brain tumor registry. I, I consulted with neurologists across the country, and they all said Canada lacks uh, a registry of brain tumors. So if there's a cluster of brain tumors in Kelowna, BC, and a cluster in Sydney, Nova Scotia, there's no way to compare the environments, the genetics, or anything else. They just don't know. And other countries have these registries. They didn't. So anyway, I, we developed a private member's bill, and it went through 
almost unanimously in the House of Commons. And now today we have a, we have a registry for brain tumors. And it started with two people who were not cynical about politics and thought something could be done. When they came to me, I had no idea what I could do. Mm-hmm. But this is what happened. But I can give you dozens of examples. A conservative member in opposition last year moved a motion to put uh, your choice of being a organ donator on the front page of every income tax return. It's going to increase organ donation dramatically in this country. Canada is in 17th place. It's it's one of our most shameful circumstances. We're in mm-hmm. 17th place for organ donation. People die because organs are not donated when they would be if they were asked. So this one this one conservative in opposition has developed this private member's bill, and it went through unanimously. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I can give you dozens of examples of how politics really makes a difference, and individ- individual politicians can make a difference, but it has to be driven from the grassroots up. So my, my, the one lesson I tell people about wanting to make change, they have to understand that voices count in politics. Voices count. Say that a dozen times. Voices count. If you've got an issue and you don't speak up, if your voice isn't heard, nothing will change. But if enough voices come to any politician, they pay attention to it and they will take action. But voices count. If there's one lesson you can learn from this podcast, it's that. Voices count and they work. So that that becomes the question I think I have. If we take like the two, uh, the family, the two boys with the brain tumors, and you said they approached you to, um, act, one thing I was going to say is where you're going, you know, is about 20 years ago. I find for myself, I say, well, 20 years ago, thinking, you know, meaning early 90s, maybe mid 90s. And I'm like, nope, 20 years ago was 2000, 2001. Yeah. So it kind of throws me off. Oh, but, it, was, it was after that. It was, I, I was like, I don't remember the year. I think it was yeah. 2005 or six. I think okay. it was. So and, uh, what did that? What did that look like? Like, how did they go about, um, like, approaching you as the member of parliament? What did what did they do? I don't remember the initial contact, but probably it was an email mm-hmm. followed up by a phone call from me to them, and a discussion about what I could possibly do. They didn't know what I could do, and I didn't know what I could do. So I consulted. I consulted neurologists and and specialists across the country. What does Canada need to improve our brain tumor? treatments and cures and they all were unanimous about this brain tumor registry and it was obviously lacking they knew it but nobody else did so that's what we did we developed a private members bill to have canada create a brain tumor registry and that is in place now and just recently just happened not too long ago but it's in place now because those two families called me and we were able to come up with a a motion that most of the, you know, everybody in Parliament voted for it except the Bloc Québécois because they felt it was a uh, an infraction in their provincial rights. And the amazing thing was the Dr. Wilder Penfield Institute in Montreal is the one of the leading neurologist uh, treatment facilities in the planet. And they wrote, had written me in support of my motion. <laughs> so the neurologists in Quebec supported it, but the politicians didn't, didn't, didn't because of politics. But anyway, it did pass. And the only ones that were against it were the Bloc Quebecois. And, uh, but uh, I've had them pass unanimously. I had one pass last year or two years ago unanimously to have the government establish a structure to help Indigenous people repatriate their their precious artifacts that passed unanimously so you can make a difference and that that came from millbrook first nation outside of Truro. 
you know, they were trying to get a, an artifact back from Australia. And this is an amazing story. They tried to get an artifact back from Australia. It was in a museum there. They've tried for 30 years to get it. Yeah. I developed a private member's bill. <clears throat> and when, I ma- when, you, when you table a private member's bill, you get about two minutes to talk about it. So I just talked about how that Millbrook had this artifact in Australia. and They wanted to get it back and couldn't get it back. And this was, they're all by themselves. Millbrook mm-hmm. is a, has a population of 1,500 to 2,000 people. They don't have the resources to work internationally and all this. So I just asked the government to establish a structure to help Indigenous peoples get their artifacts back, if they're available. Two weeks later, to my amazement, the Australian ambassador called my office and wanted to meet with me. I just thought it was a social visit. I never connected the two. But she came in and we're chit-chatting, and all of a sudden she said, I've been in touch with the museum in Australia, and they're prepared to negotiate the repatriation of that ceremonial robe. I almost fell off my seat. <laughs> so I had why? no idea that's what she, but she had heard my two-minute speech in Parliament, or somebody in the embassy had heard it. And they went to work and took it upon themselves to do so. I said, I said to her, she's a real nice lady. I said, why, why are you doing this? I said, we, I, that wasn't part of my plan. I, didn't, I wasn't asking for that. I just assumed we'd never get it back. But I said, why are you doing this? And she said, well, to tell you the truth, we want our Aboriginal artifacts back in Australia. We have a strong Aboriginal Indigenous community. We want our artifacts back. So how can we not return yours if we want you to return ours? Good point, I said. So, Very so, valid point, yeah. Yeah, it was a great point. And that motion went through unanimously in the House of Commons. So with, and, uh, with these, like, what sort of time frame would something like this take? Like, like either with the Millbrook First Nations community or the, like the, the two families with the brain tumor registry, like when they first approach you, is it like, does this happen in a week? Does it happen? years. Yeah. Years. Yeah. I'll give you a couple more examples. And some of the, some projects in this writing, one was Bulbasash. Mm-hmm. Some people brought my map into my office one day. It was an aerial photograph taken by infrared photography. An RCAF, RCAF flight had gone over Fort Lawrence and taken pictures of Fort Lawrence with infrared photography. When they went back and developed it, they discovered there was 43 dots that showed up on this photograph and infrared shows different temperatures so these 43 dots were different temperatures and that turned out to be an acadian village that was burned down in 1750 i almost fell off my chair again (laughs) but it was just that photograph found just a photograph yeah and it showed 43 foundations so i went to the province they weren't interested i went to the feds they weren't interested i went to parts canada they weren't interested eventually i was in opposition in the third party I walked across the floor and I said to Jean Chrétien, the Prime Minister, we have the wonderful thing about our parliamentary system, is the wonderful thing is, every member of parliament has access to cabinet and the Prime Minister every day. Every day we're in, sit in the same room because of question period. So I walk across the floor and I say to Mr. Chrétien, I got a problem in my writing, I need some help. I don't know this man very well. I mean, I sit in the same room with him, but I don't really know him. He doesn't know me. Uh, and the only connection is that he was elected in a by-election in Sackville, or in the riding of, of Beausajour one time, in a by-election in the 80s. So we were neighbors <laughs> okay. at that time. So All we right. got to know each other a tiny little bit, but I really didn't know. But anyway, I went over to see the Prime Minister. After the Minister of Heritage, the Minister of Environment, the Minister of Finance, everybody turned me down. I went over to see Mr. Christian as a last-ditch effort. And I said, I, need a, I have a problem in my riding, I need some help. He said, well, come on up to my office after question period. So I did. And I went up and I showed him 
an eight and a half by 11, just a regular piece of paper. Uh, it was a, it was a, a reduced map of the 40, showing the 43 dots. And that's all it showed was the, a ridge in Fort Lawrence. And Mr. Cretchen looked at it. And I explained what I thought it was. I said, I don't know for sure, but I think it's an Acadian village that was burned down in 1750. And if it is, it's the most intact Acadian village on the planet. And he looked at it and he looked at it and all of a sudden he stuck his left arm out in the air. And he said, isn't Fort Beausjour right over here? I almost <laughs> fell off my chair again. But he, nobody could, nobody, hardly anybody on the planet could do that. But he looked at this little map and said, isn't Fort Beausjour right over here? And I said, yes, it is. And then he said, wouldn't it make sense to? And he crossed his arms as if to join them. I said, yes, it would. So anyway, then he said, let me call Parts Canada. There's a man over there. He's a friend of mine. I think he likes me. And he said, uh, anyway, it's a long story. But it's a really interesting story. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but he, he personally intervened. And within two weeks, there was an archaeologist on the ground testing that site. And Sandra Bales, who was working for the Amherst Daily News, and I went over with him. And he, he, he had all his maps and his uh, GPS and everything all geared up. He's very professional. He's the head archaeologist in Eastern Canada for the government of Canada, Charles Burke. And anyway, he said, now, if this map is really right, there might be an artifact here. So he dug a, about a two-square-foot <laughs> hole, and he found eight artifacts. Oh, wow. I can't believe it, he said. I've been digging holes my whole life and not finding anything. anything and to get it <laughs> anyway, on the first one. I found, yeah, I found a pipe, a hinge, a, a shoe sole, and a... Uh, I, uh, and some other item, buttons, maybe, I forget. But anyway, so then he said, I'm going to do another square meter one over here. If, it's, if this is right, the foundation should be right here. He dug a one square meter hole. The foundation was right, went right through the middle of that one square meter hole. Unbelievable. So that started the ball rolling. And then eventually, the government of Canada bought the property, and then they eventually made it a national historic site. And now they've built a pavilion with signage and stuff, and they're, and they're, they're building a uh, a portable museum to go all over Atlantic Canada to explain the history of Beauvoisin because it was a key player in Acadian history in, in Canada. But that all happened because, and then I, I forgot that John Cratchit had been a member of Beauvoisin, the writing right. of Beauvoisin next to him. And that's how he knew where Fort Beauvoisin was. But even then, I don't, I, it just amazes me that he could look at that one little map. It didn't show anything except a ridge. And he knew where Fort Beauvoisin was in perspective. I mean, it was amazing. And it was so, such a stroke of luck. So with anyway, that, he did it. if when right. you were talking to Jean Chrétien as the prime minister, that was, that was a while ago. Like it that was 2002. Yeah. So, so we're talking, it's 18 years. <laughs> yeah, 18 years, four, four prime ministers, I think. Chrétien, uh, uh, let me see, we started Paul with Mr. Martin. Chrétien, Chrétien, Martin, uh, uh, Harper and now Mr. Trudeau, and it was just it was uh, it was just designated as three years ago, and they, they built the pavilion just three years ago. But it took fifteen to sixteen to seventeen years to to really see it come to fruition. It's not done yet. There's a, there's a plan to build a trail between Beaubassin and Fort Beauvoisin to duplicate the trail where the Acadians left uh, Beaubassin and marched across the river. And establish Fort Beauvoisin, but it's that that's on hold until we get the rising sea level issue addressed. Because we don't, they don't want to build a trail and then have it underwater, which makes sense because it's not going to be cheap. But see, the Beauvoisin was burned down by because it was on the wrong side of the river. 
under the Treaty of Utrecht, Bulbasan was on the British side of the river, and they they had to, the the French burnt it down, and they moved everybody over to Fort Beausejour, which was the French side of the river. And that's why it was burnt down. But anyway, it's awfully interesting. Lots, a ton of history there. So I often think, well, I guess I, I suppose there's two questions. One is people may hear a story like the government getting in and working on um, excavating and learning about Bobesin and making it a historical site. Or, and I guess, why is, why is that important to our community? Oh, I think it's important because there's a, there's a lot of people here that are direct descendants of the Acadians in Bobesin. Bobesin was first called Bourgeoisville after Jacques Bourgeois, who found it in 1672. And there's a judge in Nova Scotia by the name of Cindy Bourgeois. She's a direct descendant of Jacques Bourgeois, who founded Bobasin. And uh, but it's it's part of our history. And this this area was all Acadian at one time. Cumberland County was all Acadian, and and now it's the most. It, I think it's. I think if you look at the statistics, it's ninety nine point one percent English, but at one time it was a hundred percent French. It's a part of our history, part of our heritage, and I think it's uh, to me. Anything to do with our heritage and history is important and should be saved because we can learn lessons from it. I think there is also somewhat of an economic benefit that if it becomes a larger either tourist attraction or attracts people, we can, other people who may be interested in learning about uh, the Cadian heritage, there is, there can be somewhat of an economic benefit. Like I think of um, Joggins being. Not somewhat, huge. Yeah, like Joggins (laughs) being designated UNESCO heritage site. Yeah. If you look at the surveys of tourists, they the number one thing they want to see is is cultural and historical artifacts. That's what tourists want to see. They want to learn about the cultures and the people in the area they go to. They want to see the sites and everything too, but the one of the, the number one of the number one, I think it's number one, it might be number two, but anyway, it's a high, high eye on the schedule scale of interest that they want to see cultural and historical sites and learn about the history of the area. And the other thing I, I, I was thinking about with that story, um, that if we take the Bobesin and effectively we're 18 years into it and we're not, um, and we're still working through it. Sometimes I think that leads to some of the disillusionment, disillusionment with politics and the government that it took them 18 years and they could only do this. Um, what do you make of a comment like that? Well, to me, <clears throat> it's worth it like that that to, to i mean that would be a housing development now or something if 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 john gretchen hadn't looked at that map and said isn't fort bozier right over here that would be a housing development now and all those artifacts they found seven thousand artifacts so far seven thousand and they go from the 1500s the 1600s and 1700s and they're from all over the world they're from europe well mostly from europe but uh, to me uh, that would all be lost if if the if the if the persistence hadn't have stayed with it through everything, and I have three rules of dealing with government. Rule one is nothing makes sense ever. Okay, because I, I mean you can. I I had a I had an outfit call me one day here just a maybe a month ago through. We have an idea on how to improve the research on COVID nineteen. We think we can put Canada at the forefront of research on COVID-19 and explain how he would do it. Uh, there's a lot of com- com- companies and research facilities in Canada working separately. But he said, they're willing to come together 
and work together and divide up the duties so we can come up with an answer between us rather than have everybody working on the same thing. So I called the Department of Health. I knew some people there at senior levels really well because I chaired the health community program. And they said, this is a great idea. So I'm going to give you, and I was passed off to somebody else. That person passed me off to somebody else. That person passed me off to someone else. And that person passed me off to an organization. They all promised to get back to me. I haven't heard back yet. Mm-hmm. They have their own agenda and you can't give up. If you want to do something, you can't let that stuff distract it. Like I say, rule one is common sense does not apply. Common sense would say somebody would jump on that idea and at least explore it, but nobody ever did. And But common sense never applies because there's always a hidden agenda that you don't know about. It might be a personal agenda of an official or a, or a politician, or they might already have committed all their money to go in another direction even though this is a very sensible idea. So rule one is common sense does not apply in government. Rule two is you gotta, be, you gotta broaden your base of support. And that's where the voices come in. The more voices, the better. The more individual Canadians, and it doesn't matter who they are, if individual Canadians speak up, some, it will have an impact. And the third thing is what you're talking about, and that's persistence. So those are my three rules. It doesn't matter whether you're applying for a Canada pension, disability pension, or trying to get a, a site designated a National Historic Site. Rule one, nothing makes sense, so just don't let it bother you. Rule two is broaden your base of support. And we had, we had the Acadian community all over Atlantic Canada talking about this. We had local communities. We had a committee here. We had all kinds of people with voices on Bobasan. And then persistence. And that takes that you just got to be persistent or nothing will ever. But that's those are my three rules and they work. And it may not be perfect, but there's there's competing like those dollars that went into that establishing Bobasan, building the pavilion, creating the paths and roads and plaques. Those dollars were probably committed somewhere else. But because we had the voices here and we were rattling the chain and because we were persistent, we got the dollars. And that's what it takes. So with that, how... If I came to you and said, I want to, um, I'm, I'm going to pick pick an issue. Um, federal is a bit, it's easier to think of these issues for municipal, but if we pick federal, I'll pick um, the armory, like saving the armory. Mm-hmm. And say, I came to you and said, I want to, and I know it's sort of in the works, but I want to go out and broaden the base of support for this. What would you, how would you guide me? What would you say? I actually would need to go do. Well, actually, it's already been done. There's two committees have established themselves, one from a historical point of view, one from um, as a sustainable point of view, an economic, sustainable, and they both have ideas. And they're both both ready to roll, and they're both persistent, and and we have lots of voices. But right now, we're still waiting for the Department of National Defense to produce uh, a, a, a condition report on the building. You know, there, I've heard estimates of the cost of uh, renovating the building and making it uh, into usable condition from, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to millions of dollars. I don't, and I don't know which it is. And DND, for some reason, is extremely slow at producing this report. They've been at it now for a year and a half just to do a report on the state of the building. Until that's done, we can't come up with a plan because if you come up with a plan to uh, turn it into a whole a combination of different um, uses, 
uh, repurpose it for all kinds of different things. But all of a sudden, the DND comes back and says it's going to cost five million dollars more, or five yeah. million dollars more than is in your budget. You can't do anything. So we need that. But there is a there's a united effort. But that's a really good example. Glad you brought it up because that would have been that would have been closed and gone years ago if it hadn't have been for the voices that spoke up and said, no, this is part of our heritage, this is part of our history. There's 486 veterans went through that training in that facility that did not come back home. It's the only place in, in Canada where they're all together. The names are all there for the 486 Cumberland County uh, soldiers that left and didn't come back. They're buried all over Europe and, and some in Canada, some in, some in, some in uh, Palestine. But in there, they're all in one place. But the voices have kept that thing from being uh, dismantled. I mean, several times that D&D has announced they're going to close it up and disperse all the incredible artifacts in the museum there. there. There are unique artifacts in that museum that are nowhere else on the planet. And D&D has announced they're just going to disperse them. Down. They're going to put some in closets, some in basements, some in here, some in there. But the voices have stopped that. I mean, we haven't been successful in getting them to do what we want them to do, which is maintain it, because they're just not going to do it. They don't need it. They don't have a they don't have a reserve here anymore, and they just don't need it. I understand that, but the voices have kept them from closing it. So, what was? How did those voices come together? Can you tell us about? Do you remember like who was involved to create those committees or I how they got can. started? Yes, I can. There's a veteran in town who wrote the first letter that I know of. I think it was 1986, saying that this the army should be saved. Yes, I think it was 1986, and uh, and he's still at it. But he started with a veteran, and then it started with the with the curator uh, at the at the museum, who has been a volunteer there every day of his life for decades. And uh, Ray Colson is, uh, and he he's just totally dedicated to it. But he has fought the good fight, and now we have a, a, a another assistant curator, John Wales, who is excellent too. But they they have provided veterans with information, politicians with information. They've done all kinds of things to help us understand the importance of the history of the building and the artifacts in it, and and the and the contribution that the soldiers made. And uh, so the, it's again, it's uh, it's community driven. It's voices, but the voices have stopped us. The voices have stopped D&D from doing what they want to do. I mean, the newspaper announced one day here that the D&D had told them they're closing it. And, they, and that's it. They're closing it. They're going to disperse the artifacts all over everywhere. New Glasgow, Picto, Halifax. And I, they, uh, I went to see the Minister of Defense, and to his, my amazing amazement, he called them and said, no. You're not closing it. So they had to put another announcement out the next day saying, well, we're perhaps we were a little early a little, on that. Uh, a little, uh, we were a little too early with the announcement, and it's still there. And that was a couple of years ago they announced that. So there's, we're still plugging away at it, but it's the voices that count. You can, people may be cynical, but I can tell you, voices count. So the question, we've talked about this. I, I think it's easy. One of the terms and one of the things that I started uh, kind of led me down this path is I read – an article and I heard an interview talking to somebody and they introduced a concept they called political hobbyists. Oh yeah. I saw that in your notes. Yeah. yeah which are typically, well, you know, well, <clears throat> college educated middle-class men who more or less follow politics like a, like it's a sport. So they know what's happening everywhere they know. And it's typically federal and it's typically like big picture and they, and you debate these ideas and you don't go out and get involved. Like you don't you 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 don't go out and start a letter writing campaign. You don't go out and do these sorts of things. 
And so and that was, I think, I, it very quickly and very easily describes me. And so I guess what I'm wondering with that is the idea is, do you feel like there's more of an impact, like people can have more of an impact on, or is there, can people have different impacts on like the different levels of government? Like, so for example, if I went off and started a campaign to change a massive federal program, can I have a whole lot of impact that way compared to, like you said, Roy or Ray Colson picking the armory and starting there? Like, uh, look, I, I mean, it's, I have to understand that there's competition for money. Everything involves money and there's competition for every dollar. You know, another really, one of the best examples of voices working and people not being skeptical about government is the Age of Sail Museum in Porterville. It is absolutely an incredible little museum. It reflects the whole history of downshore. Porterville, Joggins, Advocate, uh, 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 Spencer's Island, and so on. It's a wonderful little museum. And when, when the group in the community said, we want to build this museum, we went to the federal government and the provincial government, and they said, no, there's eight museums ahead of you on the list before that will ever happen. But those voices were so persistent, and they gathered up resources in their own community, and they proved their point that they had unique artifacts that weren't on display anywhere else on the planet. And all of a sudden, Age of Sail is being built ahead of the other eight museums that they talked about. Before. So, uh, I mean, you can, that's a provincial example of how voices count and uh, driven by the community. I mean, politicians can't do anything. I, can, I, I couldn't do anything by myself. I, I'm absolutely useless all by myself. But if I have the voices behind me, I can I can do it. And so if the voices are behind, and those people that are jibber-jabbering on emails and writing back those hobbyist politicians that you're talking about, and I know there's a bunch of them, and they love it. They love writing, they're giving their opinions, but they don't put it in common sense perspective and write a real letter to say, I think this should change. But I, some do, but a lot of them out there do it, because I follow a lot of these email chains. There's a bunch of them around, and right around in this area. There's one in particular that's extremely critical, and 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 quite often they're right, but they don't do the things that are going to make change and improve. Which is back to your 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 rules, you know, broaden your base of support yep. and be persistent. Be persistent, and those are the two most important things. Voices count. I just can't. I, I can't tell you. Like when I get when I get a, somebody called my constituency officer or sent me an email, I, that's important to me. Every single one's important to me. If they're serious, I'll take it seriously. And I think I think most politicians are that way. But but also people have to realize, like us, Northern Pulp's a really good example of an awful situation for politicians. Because half that community down there wants it to stay open for the jobs and the economic benefit because they got mortgages, they got car loans, and how are they going to make them? And the other half wants the smell to stop. They want them to stop contaminating the waters in the in the ocean and in the in the waterways around it. So the politicians in the middle, he's getting, he's, whoever they are, he or she, and they're getting comments both ways, and it's, it's really difficult. You can't, you can't satisfy both people, I know, or both parties. I, I talked to one couple down there with the, the husband is totally in favor of keeping it going. The spouse is totally against it, and, and, and they hardn't even speak anymore because of it. So that's the, that is the problem uh, when the politicians are faced with every single issue. Every single issue, there's a small group in favor of it totally, a small group against it totally, and the rest of people iron in effect just so they don't much care. 
But that's the way it is. So you got to give politicians a little bit of flexibility there to understand there's two sides to the story. And also when you want a project done, there's competition for the money everywhere. And mm-hmm. you got to sell that idea. you got to sell your idea. Like the age of sale is the best possible example, as far as I'm concerned, of a community-driven project that went against all the odds, all the, all the absolute uh, statements by politicians and bureaucrats that can't be done, won't be done, never happened. And there it is today. And it's all community-driven. So the same thing, it would have been somebody in the community said, even though you're telling me this can't be done, I'm still going to... You can't listen to that. Yeah. You can't listen to that. That's rule one. Nothing makes sense you know, in government. If it makes sense to do it, that's one thing. But the government's decision on it is not... They, they have those eight other museums ahead of it. So you, don't, you, have a, you have an idea that makes perfect sense. But from the perspective of the bureaucrats and the officials, they've got eight ahead of them that you don't even know about. And, and some, one of them is in the writing of the minister or something like that, you know, I mean, <laughs> you never know. But, but these people in, the, in Porkerville, they, built, they made that museum happen. And it's, all, it's populated with artifacts from, from all up and down Cumberland County Shore and everywhere else. But they had some great people involved with it, and they were persistent. They, got, they, they, still, they still are persistent. And they still add. Uh, they still add to it all the time. They're always adding stuff to the music. It's a really perfect example of how nothing makes sense. Voices count. Broaden your base of support and be persistent. Perfect. So, <laughs> I um, I want to move on in a second. I kind of want to talk about your history of what got you involved in politics a long time ago. But I want to take just one quick second to share a message from our sponsor of today's episode, which is the. The, the Gratitude Project. So this is uh, another project I started as part of this podcast. Uh, we've done two episodes so far, and it came out of the interview I did with Mayor David Kogan. We talked about the public works employees and what they do for the town and what they do for us and how they don't get the thanks and the recognition that they deserve for making sure the water works, the roads are main, you know, maintained, uh, you know, sewers actually drain when you flush your toilet. And so, and I took it a step further and said, there's a lot of people in our town that we, that don't provide the thanks or don't get the opportunity to share our appreciation and gratitude. So I started uh, requesting submissions from the town or, and from community members to share stories of thanks, gratitude, or appreciation. And when we have enough, um, we'll compile them into an episode and share them. So we've done two episodes so far. You can find them on our website, tgapod.com uh, or on Apple Podcasts. And if you have a story that you'd like to share, you can go to tgapod.com slash thanks and submit it that way. And then uh, actually the connection back to you, Bill, is I've, I've, I've roped your daughter Holly into coming in to helping me share those, those stories uh, for the Gratitude Project. So if there's anybody else out there with stories they want to share, uh, please tgapod.com slash thanks. So, uh, Bill, I was wondering, you, you first ran in 19... 19- 88. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Can you, That's correct. Can you tell us a little bit about what, uh, what was the political situation like in the, in the country? Like who was in government? Who was the prime minister? What was happening locally? All right. Well, Brian Mulroney was the prime minister at the time. He was elected in 84. This was, a, this was his 88 uh, re-election, <clears throat> hopefully, for him. And uh, uh, in, the, in the riding, Bob Coates had been the, men, the uh, member for 27 years, and he had announced he wasn't running again. 
And there were three candidates who were running for the conservative nomination. And uh, everybody assumed that Glenn Elliott was going to win because he'd been so active in, in the, in the, as a volunteer and an activist in the party. And uh, the, the nomination meeting was on, I think, uh, let's say it was in the September. Uh, it was in, I think it was in September or August. And uh, it was on a Saturday. And I had not been to a political meeting in my whole life, okay? And uh, I was in to get a paper notarized by my lawyer, who was Tony Morley at the time. And while Tony is notarizing the, uh, the, the document, whatever it was, I don't remember what it was, but this was on a, this was Wednesday. The nomination meeting was on Saturday. And he said to me while he's writing up the, uh, writing, signing the notarization, he said, notarization, he said, did you hear that Glennie Elliott uh, withdrew from the competition? I said no. So that meant two. There was two people left in the competition, and uh, I, it, it tweaked my interest. Even though I had not been involved with politics at all at any level, I, I just it was a just tweaked my interest as a challenge. So my wife was working at Moss Jewelers just down the street, about two buildings down. I went down to see her, and I said, "What do you think? Think I should take a crack at that?" This is Wednesday. <laughs> or was it Thursday? I think it was Thursday. <laughs> Within and, days. Uh, so, and my brother worked right around the corner. So I went, and I, she said, sure, let's, I, she's fine with me. So I went around the corner to see my brother. I said, well, you run my car dealership because I owned Bill Casey Ford Mercury at the time. And uh, I said, well, you run the car dealership. He said, sure, it's okay with me. So I went back, Tony, I said, I'm interested in this. It was Thursday. It was Thursday because then on Friday morning, I just wasn't sure if I had a conflict or not. We had to get had to get that straightened out because my brother brother and I owned a little company that owned a, a little post office, and I didn't know whether that was it was in Paris Road. We didn't I didn't know if that was a conflict or not, and if it meant I couldn't run. I didn't know anything about politics. So anyway, we got that cleared up on Friday. So Friday, I announced I was running for the nomination the next day. And so the next day, my family and I went down to Wentworth to the nomination meeting. There was three candidates, one from Colchester, <clears throat> me from Cumberland, and another one that worked in Cumberland, but I think he lived in New Brunswick. Anyway, um, I, I, did, I came first on the, there was no winner on the first ballot, and so they called a second ballot. And, and while they were counting the votes on the second ballot, Brian Mulroney called the election. And there was no elections, fixed election day. We didn't know when it was going to be. But as a coincidence, between the between the votes and the counting, Brian Mulroney called the election. So it turned out I won the nomination. Yeah. So on Thursday, I was minding my own business selling cars. On Saturday, I was campaigning in an election. And I just went home and put my head in my hands and said, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> I really did. Um, I just, oh, I, I, I just so on a whim. Anyway. I campaigned hard and I won. I had a great team and uh, we they got behind me 100%, even though I'd never been part of politics or anything. They got behind me and uh, we won the election. And the guy that ran for the Liberals was, or ran against me, was Faisal Joseph. He was a, he was a, a conservative candidate from Truro and we're still in touch. He lives in London, Ontario now, but we're still friends after that uh, and have been ever since for 30 years, ever since that uh, nomination. But anyway, so that's how I got into politics. It was entirely an accident. Mm -hmm. I, I'm an accidental politician. And anyway, but I, I found it so fascinating and I found out that I, I learned more about me than I learned about anybody else after mm -hmm. getting elected. I learned, I learned a lot of things about myself because as a politician, you get every single problem 
that your constituents have eventually comes across your desk. It doesn't matter if it's municipal, provincial, or federal, people look for help. And it really taught me a lot. Yeah. So that's how I got into politics. I'm an ex, I always say I'm an accidental politician. Yeah, you can thank Tony Morley for. I can yeah, thank Tony Bill, Morley why for. Not? Yeah. Bill, did you hear that the claim uh, <laughs> backed out? I couldn't so, believe it. Anyway. So you said you thought. Imagine was, what the difference that made in my life. Yeah, one of those. One of those chance encounters, just uh, chance encounter. Yeah, I just went in. Just he—he he was the president of the Conservative Association at the time, or Progressive Conservative Association. Mm-hmm. So, what was it? You said that you took it as a challenge. What? You tell us, like what? What? What was the challenge? What challenge was to get elected? Mm-hmm. I, I went in it for all the wrong reasons. Okay. <laughs> I, I I love a challenge. Apparently, and uh, this was the ultimate challenge to put your name out there in front of everybody. And say, will you vote for me? Mm-hmm. And some did. <laughs> <laughs> and then you did it again. I did it. Actually, the next election, they didn't vote for me. And I lost. And oh. then the next election, I ran again. I, I didn't, wasn't going to run again, but Jean Chouet was the leader of the party then, the Progressive Conservative Party. And mm-hmm. he asked me to run. And he said, asked me to run publicly. which ran. Anyway, so I did run, and I won. And, uh, I'm the, and then I won when uh, Mr. Harper, uh, they call it a merger, but really the Reform Party or the Alliance mm-hmm. Party, whatever you want to call it, really took over the Progressive Conservative Party. And uh, I ran for them, and I won. And then he threw me out when I opposed the Atlantic Accord, and I ran as an independent, and I won as an independent. <laughs> and then I got sick, and I came home, and uh, I had cancer, and I didn't know what was the future was, so I resigned and came home. And then in 2015, I got a little email from a guy by the name of Justin Trudeau. <laughs> and he said, I'm going to come right out and ask you, would you run for the Liberal Party? And I said, no, I wouldn't. And uh, he said, is it worth a chat? And I said, yes, it is. So I mean, we emailed back and forth a little bit. So anyway, he asked me to come up to Ottawa, and, and I did. And, and I, I had met him when I was, when I was sitting as a, an independent after the Conservatives threw me out. I sat as an independent in the very back row of the seat in Parliament on the opposition side, and Justin Trudeau was right next to me. He was a brand new member of Parliament, and uh, we, uh, to my amazement, we got along really well. And I'm, I mean, I'm from a different planet than Justin Trudeau. I'm yep. from a different generation or two, but he understood Atlantic Canada. And most politicians, other than Atlantic Canadians, don't have a clue what we do down here. They don't have a clue what we are, who we are, or how we think or feel or work or anything. But he did. He spent he spent a lot of time in Atlantic Canada with his friend Dominic LeBlanc down near Shediac. So he really had a feeling for us. And I, th- I, I could sense that instantly. So when he emailed me, I, I, I wasn't, a, I mean, it was almost like getting an email from somebody you're really comfortable with and, and knew. But I didn't want to run. I didn't want to run. I didn't, I hadn't even thought of it. I had been out now for three years or something, but I got, I had gotten better and uh, my health was better. My health is good. So I said, uh, I said, I'd come up for a chat. And so I went out, I went to Halifax to get on a plane while I was waiting for the plane. <laughs> Joe Clark's wife there, Maureen McTeer was at the airport and she would, so I went over and talked to her because I she, Joe Clark was my leader at one point and the progressive serve. They got to know her. We went to her, her house quite often. And uh, she said, what are you going to Ottawa for? And I said, well, Justin Trudeau asked me to go run for him. And she said, oh, my God. She said, you got to run. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, as an old car guy, you getting on a plane to fly up to talk to Justin Trudeau, that's a pretty good buying signal. 
Well, That's it a, is, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> no, but, it, but it's awfully interesting. I mean, everything about politics is interesting. Some of it's interesting bad. Some of it's interesting good. But it's always interesting. That's I love the stimulation of politics because you don't know what's going to happen next. But here is the, the wife, the spouse of the progressive conservative former leader and former prime minister saying, I got to run for the liberals. Yep. You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway. All right. I'll follow that on. So anyway, so I did go up and I met with them and, uh, and I decided to run. So I'm wondering I did, that, I went. when you, like, if we go right back to the beginning, if you said you're an accidental politician and it, and in two days you decided to run and change careers and go that way. Do you remember, do you remember, can you tell us about like that very first house that you went out to, to knock on somebody's door and say, hi, I'm Bill Casey. I'm running. Can you remember? Oh, I don't remember the first one, but I, <clears throat> I just was thrown into it. So I had no preparation. I had no, I had no time to consult with anybody. But what's the campaign look like? Because the campaign started even before I was nominated, and I, I was just thrown into it. I, I remember the car I had. I remember the fellow that drove with me through all over the county. Who was and, that? And uh, Jack Klein. Okay. And, uh, and uh, most people. Uh, most people, most people had heard my name, and because I advertised my own business, Bill Casey Ford Mercury, and I think that made a lot of difference. And um, uh, so I wasn't, I wasn't completely unknown in Cumberland County. I was completely unknown in Colchester County. Mm-hmm. But I just did the best I did could. I held as many meetings as I could, and I just did what I could. I sold myself. I did the same thing I did in politics that I did in, in the car business. In the car business, you got to sell yourself first. You got to convince the buyer that this person is worthwhile to deal with. And that's and I used exactly the same strategy uh, selling myself in politics as I did selling cars. Yeah. Uh, I think it works. It sounds like People it's your... Know who pardon? I was going to say, it sounds like your three rules, like right back from the very beginning, you know? <laughs> Probably broaden, broaden your base of support. Yeah. You know, get out and call Chester yeah. and be persistent. It sounds like it's yeah. right back to those three. You know, in the in nineteen uh, in the in the campaign in two thousand and fifteen, when I was running for the Liberals, I think the Liberals were a little antsy about me, and they uh, they did a poll in Cumberland Colchester, and it came back that the poll said I was going to win, and uh, they and they called me to say you know they didn't want to tell me that because they don't want you to slack off, but they did tell me eventually that I that I had a clear chance of winning the election, and I said why are people saying that? And I expected them to say that I had voted against the government and I represented the people instead of the government in the Atlantic Accord fiasco. But they didn't say that. They said, because he helps people. And that meant so much to me. I mean, that made all my years in politics worthwhile to have them say, we're voting because he helps people. And that, that meant a lot to me. And, that, uh, and I was surprised that was the answer. And anyway, but that was, and, uh, and, and I did win the election. Yes. The poll was right. So we're... Um I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I just, before we wrap up, I have one more. I don't even know if I necessarily have a question on this, but on the bio you sent in the very last paragraph, you said Bill's hobbies are buying, selling and tinkering with old cars and boats. He likes to cut bushes and make trails in the backwoods and he never has enough buoys. (laughs) I love boats. I go boating. I try to go, I try to snorkel every day in the summer if I can. And, uh, but I love boats. I I've never seen a boat that I didn't like. And uh, we drag our boat all over the place on a trailer. We drag it. We've had it to get from Cape Breton 
to we haul it down to Maine every year. We go to one or two ports in Maine every year. We go to Spencer's Island almost every year. We go to Halifax Harbor if we can. We've been to Lunenburg and Digby. We've been to uh, uh, Liscombe Lodge last year. There's there's four couples go. I take my boat and we just put around the coast and we collect buoys. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we collect buoys and rope. Okay. And we have our number one buoy collector is Morris Haug. He's fearless. He'll jump off the boat into rocks, water, seaweed, or anything. If there's a buoy there, he's fearless, and he'll go get it. And, Sounds uh, right. Yeah. I mean, it's all sensible. You know, nothing, It's like the rule, nothing makes sense. But we collect buoys, and sometimes we come home with a truckload of buoys. I'm not kidding. And uh, so there's never enough. If you go see Morris Howe's cottage, I notice he just built a new fence, and he's got buoys the whole length of it. <laughs> and, and I've got the same thing. I had them hanging on trees, but the trees all blew down in the storm last summer. Yeah, you have to find a new home for that. Maybe I've got to find a new place to hang them. But that's what the buoy stories is. But uh, all right, I had to ask. It's got to be a tradition. Yes, that makes lots of sense to me. I, I think I totally understand it. So, um, Bill, thank you, thank you for coming on um, and, and talking with me. Um, is there, you know, like I said, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Is there, do you have a final summation or a final thought that you'd like to share with everybody? Well, actually, I really appreciate what you're doing. And, uh, I, I hope to start a blog myself, uh, but to inspire people to be involved with Pulse, because I really believe in the system and I know it works. And I know our system is the best on the planet, even though all you see is the criticism of it. I know it works. When I, I was a member of the third party, when I walked across the floor to talk to the prime minister of the country and I said, I need some help. He said, come up to the office. And that resulted in a huge asset for our writing. The fact that he listened to me. And that, that wouldn't happen in the States because they don't have access to their ministers or their leaders. They don't, they don't have it anywhere except Canada, like we have it. It's totally unique. And I, I, this blog, I hope to inspire people that want to be involved as politicians or as volunteers because I believe in the system. I know how critical it is. And if it slips away, like we're watching things change in the U.S. where the respect for politicians and the system is failing. And it's so easy for it to happen. And uh, in Canada, it will happen if we don't if we don't feed that system, if we don't show an interest in it, if we don't support it. That will happen here. The people will all back off. Then somebody, some guy, some person will take it in a different direction than we than we want it to go. So I'm going to start the blog, and uh, I'm going to invite you to be part of it if you want to be, because uh, I want to inspire politicians everywhere, not just Canada, not just Nova Scotia, but everywhere, to aspire to be politicians. Listen to people. My, my focus has always been my, the people that I represent. I, unfortunately, I have not uh, tried to uh, enhance my career in politics. But you almost have to make a choice. Are you going to represent the people or are you going to represent the party or somewhere in between? And uh, it's a decision. That, and I want to appeal to the people that like representing people. And uh, I don't want, there's no point in me trying to appeal to the people that want to grow in the business because I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I. Uh, I, I just think that I think it's valuable. I think it's priceless to have the privilege to, to represent people. And it's an obligation to represent them to the best of your ability. And those are the people I want to appeal to everywhere. And uh, I, I absolutely believe in the system. I know it works better than anybody. I've seen it with my own two eyes. I can give you dozens of examples. So that's what that's my last thought. But I appreciate what you're doing. I think it's a great thing. Well, thank you very much. And when you have the uh, 
I, I think two things for that. When you have the blog up, when you have that, let me know. I'll I'll send it out. I'll let people know. We can get All right. people going that way. And I think that's an I'm interesting. I'm going to call it painless politics. <laughs> Sounds good. Painless politics. Yeah, um, painless politics, Inc., actually. I think I had to put ink on it. I couldn't get painless politics. Somebody else had already taken it, but yeah. I could get I got painless politics ink. <laughs> they want to sell it, but they want thousands of dollars for yeah, that I'm name. Saying. So no thanks. And I think that's uh in, again an interesting topic, an interesting conversation for uh, the fall, where the municipal election in Amherst in the county is still, as of now, still on. Um, I think it's an important thing for people to think about. And I so too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's perfect. Thank you very much, Bill. And once that's up, we'll help share your blog. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks a lot, Bill. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you once again to Bill for coming on and sharing his stories and his insight uh, on his career over politics and how individual people can get involved to make that difference in our community. Uh, Once Bill's got his blog up and ready, we'll definitely share a link to that. And I hope you enjoyed our first episode in our three-part series on how individual people can get involved in politics. If you like this, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. And please stay tuned for our next episode with Terry Farrell, our former MLA. That's coming next Monday, May 25th.